Hey everyone, thank you for watching Fit with Fallon. I'm Fallon Mercedes Brock, and today I have a very special guest. Now, November is National Diabetes Awareness Month, and I was lucky enough to spend my Friday night with Mr. Cyrus Kambada. Now, if you haven't heard of him yet, you will know why he is so popular. He is a, what is it, a nutritional biochemist, is that correct? That's right. Okay. That's right, you got it. So that just translates to he's a very smart man and he's also <laughs> one of the owners of Mastering Diabetes and not to mention New York Times bestseller or co-author of Mastering Diabetes. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here today, Fallon. Yeah, thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to dive in and really talk about diabetes because I feel like there's so much misinformation. And after years of following you and learning what your company does and how it helps people, um, I am just so honored to pick your brain for the next however long you let me do that. So what I want people to know if they haven't heard of you yet is what is your story and why are you so passionate about helping others who have many different forms of diabetes? This is a great question. Um, it's funny because when I grew up, uh, you know, I was just a happy-go-lucky kid and I was playing literally every sport under the sun. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that was because at a very young age, my mom recognized that I had more energy than she knew what to do with. So she would enroll me in like soccer and baseball and swimming and basketball and then summer camp. And she would just literally put me in everything I could possibly... Uh, you know, any kind of sports related activity. So that by the time I got home, I was just like tired and I wouldn't bother her. Right. Mm -hmm. And this huge gift she gave me because I grew up being active and I love being active and I continued being active all throughout, uh, you know, middle school, high school, and then college. Uh -huh. So senior year of college, I'm 22 years old. I'm trying to graduate. I'm trying to move on with my life. This is the year 2002. And all of a sudden out of nowhere. So you're like kid, my age in your thirties. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I mean, you're like 19. So, right? yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden I'm like, I, I get like really tired and I'm just like, man, I can't even keep my eyes open anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, and what I would notice too, is that I couldn't concentrate very well. And my thirst just went through the roof. Right. So I would like, I'd be sitting there, I was like studying for finals and then I'd be like, man, I'm thirsty. So I take a drink of water, put it down and I continue studying. And I was like, I am thirsty. Take another drink, put it down, and I was like, I think I'm thirstier. And I just like I kept this process going for like hours and hours and hours. And because I was drinking so much fluid, I would go to the bathroom like clockwork every 30 minutes. Just go, 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 go. 17, 18, 20 times a day. So I picked up the phone and I called my sister and I was like, Hey, Shanaz, what the heck is going on with me right now? She's a doctor. Mm -hmm. She's smart. She knows things. So I explained my symptomology to her. She cried immediately. She was like, Cyrus stop everything you're doing. Go right to the health center right now. You have type one diabetes. And I was like, just like, Shanaz, type How one. Diabetes. What are you type one? I, knew, I knew she knew, but like. I, yeah, because she paid attention in, in medical school. <laughs> she's incredibly smart. Uh, she, she's the type of person, she's like a, a medical encyclopedia. I mean, you can, even to this day, yeah. you can go up to my sister and you can be like, hey, so patient presents to you with you know, this random collection of symptoms what's the cause? And she mm -hmm. usually just goes like, doo, 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 doo. oh, okay, it's colitis. And I'm like, how did you know? Right? Yeah. Uh, she's kind of like a house MD because she just, she just knows things and she's smart and she pays attention, right? Cool. Which is, is really cool. So she identified type one diabetes right off the, the bat. 
So I ended up going to the hospital. They ended up discovering that my blood glucose was in the 600s, six times higher than it was supposed to be. That's crazy. And then they started giving me a drip irrigation of insulin. And, you know, I had IV saline going to one arm and then I had IV insulin going to the other. And they were trying to bring my blood glucose down using a small amount of insulin. So I get diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And they also pieced together a, a complex puzzle. They were like, Cyrus, you don't have one, but you have three autoimmune conditions. Are you aware? And I was like, what? What are you talking about? Wow. They're like, you have Hashimoto's hypothyroidism, which is why your thyroid gland is not making a sufficient amount of thyroid hormone. Number two, you have alopecia universalis, which is why you lost all your hair. You have no eyebrows. You have no eyelashes, no hair, no ear hair, no nose hair, nothing. And then number three, you have type 1 diabetes. Autoimmune, autoimmune, autoimmune. Even diabetes is autoimmune? Type 1 diabetes is autoimmune. Wow, I never knew that. Yep. It's, it's crazy. And I was like, three autoimmune? I'm, like, I'm 22. I'm an active guy. I pay attention to my health. I thought I ate well. Like, did I give this to myself? Is this my fault? Yeah. And what am I doing wrong? Tell me. You know, like, I'll change. No big deal. So they didn't have any answers for me. They literally were just like, they were like, they literally said, Cyrus, we've never seen a patient with, this three, with these three autoimmune conditions. Can we talk about you at our next team huddle? And I was like, you can do whatever you want. Oh, just you're like, great, it. I'm a science project. <laughs> I'm told exactly what I thought. I was like, wow, that does not give me any confidence that you guys know what you're doing. So they told me, they're like, listen, we can't tell you what to do. We don't know how to solve alopecia. We don't know how to solve Hashimoto's. Mm -hmm. We can't solve type 1 diabetes, but we do know that people who eat a carbohydrate restricted diet, a low carb diet, can control their glucose pretty well. Eat a low carb diet. And I was like, fine, what do I do? So they're like, here's a book with a bunch of carbohydrate values in it. Memorize it. Here's a prescription for insulin, syringes, uh, test strips, a blood glucose meter, and a life alert bracelet. See ya. And I was like, my entire life changed in front of me, just like instantly. So over the course of the first year, I was like, all right, let me do this low carbohydrate thing. And I tried to, you know, eat turkey burgers for breakfast mm -hmm. and eggs and cheese and peanut butter and milk. And I tried to limit my intake of fruits and potatoes and rice and beans and corn because that's what you do on a low carbohydrate diet. Yeah. And I was really trying to like follow it well. It wasn't a ketogenic diet because I didn't, there was, the word ketogenic didn't exist. In it was Atkins. Right? <laughs> Atkins existed. Yeah. I did not do an Atkins diet. I did like a modified low carbohydrate diet, 75 to 125 grams of carbohydrate per day, which is as far as, you know, the research is concerned that technically falls under the low carbohydrate number. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I started eating those foods and, and I thought it was supposed to control my blood glucose well, right? It's supposed to keep my blood glucose relatively stable. And it's supposed to keep my insulin use relatively stable. Did the exact opposite. My insulin, my, first of all, my blood glucose was a disaster. Like, I really wish I had taken pictures of my blood glucose meter at that point because my blood glucose was like 288, up and down, up and down. 34, 290, 27, 410. And I was just like, this is a joke. Like, this yeah. isn't even, this isn't even fun. You know what I mean? Yeah. And my insulin use went from 25 units to 30 to 33 to 36 to 39 to 42 to 45. And before I knew it, I was like, why am I injecting so much insulin? I don't, I'm, I'm injecting more insulin and my glucose is not getting better. Getting better. 
what the heck is going on, right? So a year into it, 2003, 23 years old, I was like, all right, this low carbohydrate thing is not working. I gotta try something different. Yeah. So I started learning, investigating, talking, researching, reading, you name it. And I had a friend and he was like, you should talk to Doug Graham. And I was like, who is Doug Graham? And he was mm -hmm. like, Doug Graham is a guy, he's a, he's a raw food vegan who teaches people how to eat a raw food vegan lifestyle. And I was like, cool, how do I get in contact with him? Mm -hmm. So I ended up getting in contact with him, going to visit him for a week. And where were we? With him. He, so he runs these like week long fitness retreats mm -hmm. and it happened to be within a month and I went to go see him in Colorado. And it was, I mean, Doug fundamentally changed my life, like wow. from the ground up. I, I owe him so much. It's unbelievable. So within one week of being under his tutelage, he basically was like, all right, all this like turkey, burger, eggs, bacon thing that you're eating, you're done. You're done immediately. Stop eating that stuff. Under my supervision, you will be eating lots of fruits and lots of vegetables. And that is it. And I was like, okay, but... <laughs> Were you scared now because you have been told that fruit, it has sugar and it's going to make your, you know, diabetes worse. You hit on the head. And I turned to him and I was like, Doug, according to my endologist, according to my medical team and my like nutritionist, if I were to eat a bunch of fruit, I'm going to need a bunch of insulin and then my glucose is going to go through the roof. And he looks at me, he goes, oh, really? Um, how's that low carbohydrate diet working out for you? Didn't you come to, You're like, to try and get true that, true that. advice and I was he's like why are you here if you're going to be resistant to this information why are you here and I was like yeah. I'm not resistant I'm just curious and he's like watch the magic unfold just trust me trust do you trust process. me like, yeah I trust you he says just trust me watch so I mean the first 24 hours of transitioning from a low carbohydrate diet to a whatever you want to call it high carbohydrate low fat plant-based diet fruit-centric diet you name it and you mentioned when you were doing the low carb diet, you had no energy. None. None. Okay. Here, here's, here's how low my energy was. Cyrus growing up. Bouncing of off the walls, around. can't sit down. Totally. Totally. Just like a, like a hellcat, like yeah. all over the place. Right. Cyrus in college, like cut that by 50%. Right. And then Cyrus with type one diabetes after six months, boom, like, non-existent to the point where like I'd get up in the morning and I was, I literally would get up on certain mornings and I was like, Oh my God, I wish I was still asleep right now because being asleep is so much easier. And it's not like you were a college student, you know, hungover and like, it was just tired, not from alcohol and partying. It was tired from getting eight hours of sleep and still tired. Exactly. Right. It was tired from something that I didn't know the answer to. Yeah. And, you know, clearly it was the food that I was eating. Um, but it, yeah, definitely. I was, I was doing no partying, no smoking, no drinking, none of that at that time. It was just like, I was just trying to like survive yeah. and my energy level seemed like they were going lower and lower and lower. So under Doug's tutelage, he basically was like, we're going to switch you over. 24 hours had gone by and my glucose started falling and falling and falling and falling and falling. I was like averaging before the retreat, a glucose of like 160 to 200 all day long, every day. And it didn't matter how much insulin I injected. I just couldn't get it down. Within 24 hours, my glucose was hitting 75, 70, 65, 50, 50, 50, 50, 50. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. I and what should a type one diabetic glucose should be? And what should a normal person's glucose should be? 
normal glucose, 70 to 130 within that window. If I tested your glucose any time of any day, you'd be within 70 to 130. Well, I'm drinking so, some wine right now, so it might be a little higher. <laughs> so you're probably 70 to 132 then, right? But then people with diabetes are told as a mental cutoff, they say, if you see your glucose dropping below approximately 70, 80 to 70, 70 to 80, then take evasive action. Try and get your glucose up a little bit more because otherwise you go into hypoglycemia territory. So I was below that multiple times in a day. So I had to stop, you know, reduce my usage insulin. of insulin. Mm -hmm. Within one week, one week, my insulin use went from 42 units a day to 25 units a day. I cut wow. my insulin use by 40% in one week. But here's the kicker. I cut my insulin use by 40%, but my carbohydrate intake went the up. opposite direction. My carbohydrate intake went from like 100, 125 grams a day to six. 100 grams of carbohydrate per day. So I was eating six times as much carbohydrate Crazy. for 40% less insulin. And I was like, why has nobody told me about this before? And Doug was like, welcome to the pharmaceutical industry. Welcome to the modern yeah. you know, medical world, right? That's just what, that's just what happened. Wow. And I was like, wow, there's this, this biological experiment, which is unfolding inside of me right now is so dramatic and so unmistakable and so fascinating that I want to learn more. So I went back to graduate school and I went and I got a PhD in nutritional biochemistry because I was like, I wanted to read everything under the sun. I wanted to like really study it and get inside of it so I could really understand what was happening inside of me. So we should like, be calling you Dr. Cyrus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're on a first name basis. <laughs> but the, the goal here was for me to prove to myself that I was not a freak of nature. That's all I wanted to know. I was like, if I am different than everyone else around me, I want to know. But if I'm if I'm normal and like what happened what's happening to me could also be applicable to other people with type one or type two or pre-diabetes, I want to know. Yeah. So when I went to graduate school, I basically learned that there's the, the, the scientific world mm -hmm. has known for 100 years, since the 1920s, wow. how to create blood glucose instability and how to reverse blood glucose instability. In other words, the research world knows if you want to make someone have higher blood glucose, do this. And if you want to reverse high blood glucose and reverse prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, do this. So that means the pharmaceutical company hates you. <laughs> the pharmaceutical company hates me. They, they can't stand me. And your they, company and everything you're doing. Absolutely right. One day I might just be taken out and who knows, <laughs> I'll right? Know why. I'll know why. <laughs> yeah, go back I'll to this podcast. your documentary. I know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't want to No, but you're right. You're right. So, so when, we, when I learned this information that the scientific world knows exactly how to create and reverse blood glucose, high blood glucose, right? But yet what the general public does is eat a low carbohydrate diet because that's the predominant you know, recommendation for people living with diabetes and even people not with diabetes. Yeah. The problem is that eating a low carbohydrate diet is the way to cause mm -hmm. high blood glucose in the long term. So the scientific world basically says don't eat a low carbohydrate diet because it causes higher blood glucose over time. And the public is like, eat a low carbohydrate diet because it lowers your blood glucose. The two of them are two separate messages. I don't know about you. I believe the research. I don't believe the public. 
And, and I know I this for a fact me. because I, um, I used to do keto for years, you know, cause everybody was doing it and I'll never forget. Um, I was like my first year into keto and my doctor told me, you know, your sugars or your glucose, or I should say A1C was a little elevated, but you're mm -hmm. fine. And when I looked into it, I'm like, no, I'm like pre-diabetic. This isn't just elevated. This is like, so that's when I, I kind of thought like, this doesn't make sense. Like right. keto, but why is my A1C going up? It's never been this high before. Exactly. Are you aware of a, a guy named Sean Baker by any chance? The, uh... No, who's that? Okay, so Sean Baker, let me just take this sweatshirt off here. Sorry. Um, Sean Baker is, uh, he was like the first guy to publicize a carnivore diet. Uh, this was like, uh, at this point, probably like three or four years ago, he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and basically made a big stink about why a carnivore diet is actually evolutionarily congruent with human physiology. I think I've heard of people going on the carnivore diet. Yeah. So the carnivore diet since that time has become a much bigger deal. Now, I have nothing against Sean Baker. I've actually heard from uh, people whom I know who know him from mutual friends. He's actually a really nice guy and that he has no ill will to humanity, right? So he's not like some egotistical, uh, you know, uh, anyway, he's not an egotistical personality. Point being, he followed a carnivore diet for, I think it was 14 months, and then he got his blood work done before and after. And he, similar to the, 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 the rhetoric that you hear in the, in the ketogenic world, mm -hmm. is that, you know, I'm healthier. Everything is in the right direction, right? But if you actually look at his blood work, which he published online, his LDL cholesterol was significantly elevated. It was like 130 plus. His A1C was uh, in the type two diabetic range. He had 6.5 A1C. Oh yeah. And okay. his fasting insulin was significantly elevated, meaning that he had prediabetes. So, so if you put all that together, you're like, you are at risk for heart disease. You have either prediabetes or type two diabetes, but yet you're telling the world that I'm healthy, I'm safe and everything's fine. A carnivore diet is good for you. It doesn't match up. It doesn't match up at all. And this is the problem. Just because your abs are now popping, you lost some body fat does not mean you are healthier viscerally, like on the inside. Correct. And it's just because you're losing weight does not mean optimal health. And I think that's where people get it wrong. 100%. You, you hit it on the head. Absolutely agree with you. It's, it's, it's frustrating. Yeah. But I think it's easy to come up with the... Uh, with the assumption that if you look good on the outside, then you're healthy on the inside. But the two of them are completely opposite. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, it's just not an appropriate, yeah. um, you know, assumption. So point being is that we were talking about eating a low carbohydrate diet, a low carbohydrate diet actually causes high blood glucose over the long term. In the short term, no, it actually controls your blood glucose very nicely and it reduces your need for medication and insulin, which is what people experience. But if you track people over the course of time, Six months, 12 months. And two that's years, why after years. a year with me, my A1C went up. Even though I lost weight and I, you know, was okay in the beginning. Yeah, exactly. So tell me, what did your A1C start at and what did it go to? I don't remember exactly, but it might have been 5.0 and then might have went to 5.7 or 5.9. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. All I know is that I wasn't in the pre-diabetic range. And I remember the doctor, um, she had me come back and retest 
Because mm -hmm. maybe you ate something because last year's levels were not come back again. And then I came back again and it was the same thing. It was the same thing. Yeah, exactly. So you're like, hmm, this is not actually changing. Yeah. This is not working. Right. So that, I mean, basically that's the story. So, so now here we are, uh, you know, I'm 18, 17 years into eating a plant-based diet. In other words, I've been eating strictly plant-based diet for wow. 17 years. And my A1C values have actually been within, you know, at the lowest of 5.4, at the highest of 6.2. Wow. And um, it's, you know, my cholesterol is perfectly in range. My triglycerides are incredibly low. My LDL cholesterol is like a 70. Wow. My total cholesterol is 120. My blood pressure is in line. I'm active every single day. I go to CrossFit. Um, you know, I don't get sick. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. Wow. That's and so awesome. it's been a really fun process. And, you know, we created, I met up with Robbie Barbero. Uh, who's my yeah, co-founder? Robbie, why isn't he on tonight? <laughs> I know, seriously. It's so, okay. It's okay. I, I, I wanted to talk to you. No, I can. <laughs> okay, we'll do it with him next time. But point being is that we met up along the way, and when we did, we realized I was like, "Hey, you're like you're like a carbon copy of me. Uh -huh. you know, ten years younger than me, but like had gone through a very similar process, type one diabetes. Where did you meet? Plant-based diet. We met because we both got invited to speak at a uh, at a a vegan you know health conference. Uh -huh. And Doug Graham, who I learned from, also taught Robbie. So Doug oh, so you told both Cyrus to, to meet Robbie and told Robbie to meet Cyrus. We're like, oh, okay, cool, that sounds good. And we finally met each other, and I was like, uh, you want to be best friends? And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So we met each other, ended up becoming very good friends, and then we created Mastering Diabetes with, a, with the sole explicit intent to teach people living with all forms of diabetes, type 1, type 1.5, pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes. That. Yeah, gestational diabetes. I forgot about that. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a big issue. one. It's that's a big one. issue. It's a huge issue. And so we're, we're trying to teach people, and what we do is we teach people how to transition to a plant-based diet for optimal insulin sensitivity. In other words, to reverse insulin resistance completely. And when you reverse insulin resistance completely, then not only is your blood glucose more controllable, not only can you normalize your A1C, not only can you get off of pharmaceutical medication, not only can you lose weight and lower your cholesterol, uh, not only do you gain energy, but your risk for chronic Fire. disease as mm -hmm. a whole Chronic kidney disease, fatty liver disease, Alzheimer's Oops, disease, heart, heart disease. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all of that comes down dramatically. And that's the beauty of pinpointing insulin resistance as the issue and reversing insulin resistance so that your overall health goes through the roof and you can feel like a million bucks. Okay, so for people listening who might not know the difference um, between diabetes, I might be questioning, why are you still taking insulin? So there's a yeah. big difference between type <sighs> one diabetes and type two. Can you explain that for us? For sure. There's a huge difference between type one diabetes and type two. So type one diabetes, type one and type 1.5 diabetes are autoimmune conditions. 1.5? Both of them. 1.5, 1 1.5. 1 it's a, it's a version of diabetes that most people never heard of. Okay. Here's the difference. Type one, is, is a autoimmune reaction, which happens generally in 
uh, people aged zero to 30 years old. You're either born with it or you develop it in adolescence or childhood or, you know, upwards of, you know, being in your 20s. So between the ages of zero and 30, no, that's when you are really like dropping gems. So, okay, go ahead. <laughs> okay, perfect. So autoimmune condition that, that impairs the ability of your beta cells to manufacture and secrete insulin. Uh, fast, uh, strong autoimmune reaction that, that uh, puts you at full insulin dependence, meaning you go from being able to secrete insulin to generally being able to secrete zero insulin over the course of approximately 12 to 18 months. Wow. That's a fast autoimmune reaction. Okay? Type 1.5 diabetes, autoimmune, generally affects people over the age of 30, adult onset, slow progressing, often gets misdiagnosed as type 2 diabetes. Oh, often gets misdiagnosed as type 2 diabetes. Often people with type 1.5 diabetes are treated as though they are type 2 and they're given oral medications and oral medications do not work. So what happens if you're 1.5 getting metformin when you should be getting insulin? Yeah. Your glucose stays high. You get frustrated. Your doctor says, oh, well, metformin didn't work. Why don't we try glipizide? Why don't we try another sulfonylurea? Why don't we try Invokana? Why don't we try an SGLT2 inhibitor? Why don't we try a DPP4 inhibitor? And they just like, they throw drug after drug after drug after drug. After drug. And before you know it, a lot of people with type 1.5 end up with three, four, five different medications. Yeah. And all of these medications are supposed to either stimulate their pancreas to make more insulin or help them decrease the absorption of carbohydrates in their intestinal tract mm -hmm. or improve their insulin sensitivity inside of their liver and muscle. And they do minor things here and there, here and there, here and there. But the real problem is that they just, they just don't make enough insulin because they have an autoimmune condition. Got it. Okay. But they were never tested for the autoimmune condition. So they don't know. So the doctor doesn't know. So they come to us and they go, oh, hey, here are my symptoms. And then we go, we know, we know the symptomology. Yeah, like we know. Right? You, people describe what's happening. They go, okay, great. You probably have type 1.5. They go, they get tested and they find out, oh yeah, I have an autoimmune antibody. One of, you know, they could have one, they could have multiple antibodies. So and, what test do you take to determine? Like, so if you go to your doctor, what do you say? Mm -hmm. I need what kind of test to determine if I have 1.5? Okay, so the most important thing you can take is what's called a diabetes antibody panel. Okay. They test for five different antibodies. These antibodies just get complex, but just for the purposes of being simple. Number mm -hmm. one, GAD, G-A-D-D. -D. Number two, I-C-A. Number three, I-A-2-A. Number four, uh, insulin antibody. Oh, that was known as IAA. And number five, ZNT8. Okay, so these are all just like complex, weird words. Mm -hmm. And they're all five different antibodies that you could test positive for. You if have you to test go to an endocrinologist or you can go to your family physician or? You can go to a family physician and just say, hey, I would like a diabetes antibody panel. And they, they okay. should be able to get those tests for you. Yeah. If you test positive for at least one of them, then you have an autoimmune version of diabetes. Period, end of story. That's a, that's a definitive autoimmune test. Wow. In addition to that, we also recommend getting a C-peptide test. C-peptide yeah. is basically a test that will indicate, it gives you a good indicator of how much insulin your pancreas 
is capable of secreting. Mm -hmm. Your C-peptide will either come back as low, medium, or high. So if you test positive and you have one antibody at the minimum, maybe multiple, and your C-peptide value is low, what that means is that you are not manufacturing very much insulin because you have an autoimmune reaction. Wow. If your C-peptide is medium, that means you have an autoimmune reaction and you are likely on your way to becoming low. Which would indicate why after 30, you would get the 1.5. Exactly right. Exactly right. So if you kind of like put these two tests together and kind of play detective, you can determine what the right course of action is. But like we talked about earlier, treating the person with type 1.5 with oral insulin sensitizing medication is not going to work. It just doesn't work. And so what ends up happening is they get frustrated. They go, oh, something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with my body. And they get anxious and depressed and frustrated. Mm -hmm. In reality, just like other conditions where the condition is presented, the medication doesn't solve the problem. Mm -hmm. People get frustrated. They internalize and they go, oh, I'm, I'm the problem. I'm the problem. Maybe it's in my head. Maybe I'm not, you know, maybe something's wrong with me. Mm -hmm. In reality, the answer is no. Your pancreas does not make a sufficient amount of insulin. That is the problem. We need to solve that problem. The way you solve that problem is by injecting insulin. You use small amounts of insulin in type 1.5. Mm -hmm. And generally speaking, the last thing I'll say about it, generally speaking, people with type 1.5 diabetes end up using very small amounts of insulin. I'm talking about one or two units of basal and maybe three to eight units of bolus per day. Very small amounts. So what is and that? Using just small basal basal basically means one to two units of like background insulin that you inject once a day that's just kind of like drip feeding your blood with insulin over a 24-hour period and then mealtime insulin when you okay because you're probably dinner. gonna yeah i get it with the meals correct so point being is your overall insulin requirements between your background and between your mealtime insulin is very low versus someone living with type 1 diabetes like myself who mm -hmm. injects 25 units of insulin mm -hmm. per day, which is physiologically very normal. Mm -hmm. It's just that 25 compared with 10 mm -hmm. is like a little bit more than double, right? Got it. So that's the difference between type 1 and 1.5. Now, the question that you asked is what's the difference between autoimmune and non-autoimmune, right? So mm -hmm. when it comes to non-autoimmune diabetes, we're looking at pre-diabetes, type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes. All three of those are caused by the same thing, which is insulin resistance. Okay. So why is it, so gestational diabetes is when you're pregnant and you get diabetes. So why is it when you're pregnant that you become insulin resistant? Or yeah, so it's, it's part of the normal physiology. Usually a woman becomes insulin resistant primarily because it's a way for her body to shunt glucose towards the baby. So she's absorbing it all to protect the baby she no 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 other way around she's oh. absorbing less right oh, so okay got it yeah yeah so if you think about it as though you have a baby inside of you you have your own body to feed with glucose mm -hmm. from carbohydrate and then you have the baby to feed with glucose you put carbohydrate into your mouth and the carbohydrate goes down into your digestive system your digestive system says okay cool let me put this into the blood so your digestive system puts glucose into the blood and then once in the blood, glucose is like, tell me where to go. I'm in. You just show me where to go and I'll go wherever. So 
by developing insulin resistance naturally from a normal physiological state Mm -hmm. of being pregnant, what a woman's body is basically doing is it's constructing a wall in her liver and her muscle. And it's basically saying, hey, glucose, you can come in, but in very small quantities. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because I don't want you coming into the mom's liver and muscle. I want you going into the baby's liver and muscle. I want you crossing the placenta to go into the baby because if you do, that's going to help the baby grow because that's the fuel of choice for the baby, right? And that's a good thing for the baby because it allows the baby to basically, it directs glucose towards the baby. And as a result of that, the baby can actually grow naturally. So babies who um, are born from moms who have um, gestational diabetes, are they more um, likely to get type two diabetes then because they had so much glucose in the womb? Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me back up here for a second, just to make sure we're being super clear. (laughs) If we're talking about a a woman who does not have diabetes and the woman who is not at risk for diabetes, Mm -hmm. She will become slightly more insulin resistant, again, to shunt glucose towards the baby. That is perfectly normally, uh, physiologically normal. The problem occurs when the mother has developed excess insulin resistance Mm. due to her diet. So if a woman is either sedentary or she eats a diet that's high in fat, especially saturated fat, Mm -hmm. and she develops excess insulin resistance inside of her liver and muscle beyond what is normal in pregnancy, Mm -hmm. then more and more and more glucose is shunted towards the baby and is is given to the baby. And her body starts to secrete excess insulin. So glucose rises in her blood because it can't get inside of her liver and muscle. Insulin rises in her blood in order to try and do something about that glucose. And then the baby is exposed to a high glucose, high insulin environment for many months. Mm -hmm. In a high glucose, high insulin environment, what happens to a baby? Well, the baby grows and the baby gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And instead of delivering a six and a half or seven pound baby, you end up delivering an eight and a half or nine pound baby, right? And as a result of that, there's a number of problems that could present itself. Number one, the baby is that it grows up in an insulin resistant state in utero. And as a result of that, the baby is at a much higher risk for chronic disease mm-hmm. when they're delivered. They're, they're at a higher risk for weight gain. They're yeah. at a higher risk for the development of diabetes down the road. Okay? And the mom is at a higher risk for type 2 diabetes after she delivers the baby. It's literally a 60% higher risk for the mom. Wow. After she delivers the baby. So even though gestational diabetes, technically speaking, goes away, as soon as the baby's delivered, what women don't realize, what they're not told. You still have insulin resistance, probably. Exactly. You're still insulin resistant. The conditions that were present inside of you while that baby was growing are still present inside of you. You are likely to develop type 2 diabetes unless you change your lifestyle and change your lifestyle. Now, this makes sense because um, after I did the keto diet for a year, my my glucose um, A1C went up. I feel like I've struggled with weight ever since. And um, it's probably because I'm insulin resistant. I've never gotten tested for it. Can you get tested for it? Can you get tested for insulin resistance? Absolutely. You certainly okay. can. Yeah. So in the, in the pregnancy of like, I'm sorry, in the setting of pregnancy, the way that a woman usually finds out that she has gestational diabetes 
is because she goes to the doctor and she gets what's called an oral glucose tolerance test. Oh yeah, that's where you drink like the glucose tablets or whatever, glucose, the sugar. It's a glucose solution, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then they monitor your glucose over two hours and if your glucose goes beyond, I think in a OGTT, I gotta remember, it's actually, uh, there's, no, there's no international standard for it. It's kind of frustrating depending on who you go to, whether it's the American Diabetes Association or the Australian Diabetes Association, you name it, they're all different. But the idea here is that if your glucose gets elevated, usually beyond about 160, 180, if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. Um, during a two-hour period, then you have you're diagnosed with type you know, with with gestational diabetes. Wow! And even non-pregnant women and non-pregnant men <laughs> can mm -hmm. get tested, take an oral glucose tolerance test, and give them a, a lot of valuable information to determine whether they are also insulin resistant or not. Got it. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so type two diabetes then mm -hmm. is yes. So type 2 diabetes is caused by prediabetes. Prediabetes is caused by insulin resistance. In other words, you cannot become type 2 diabetic unless you were prediabetic. You cannot become prediabetic unless you were insulin resistant or unless you are insulin resistant. So it's a prerequisite. So the, the thing that causes insulin resistance it's highly debated, extremely debated. You go onto the blogosphere, you see type in insulin resistance into Google, you're mm -hmm. going to get hit with multiple different philosophies. Mm -hmm. On one hand, you're going to get me telling people, oh, you should eat a plant-based diet that's low in fat because that's how you reverse insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Then you have a whole bunch of people pointing a finger at me and saying, oh, that Cyrus guy, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He works for the pharmaceutical company. He but how do you work for the pharmaceutical company when you're not prescribing or suggesting medication? People don't think very well. Just, I don't understand that. So how, how is your response to that? Like I've seen you go head to head with the doctors and mm -hmm. how is your response to people in the medical community or doctors when they say, you know, your theory is wrong where you have firsthand experience and so does Robbie? Yeah, exactly. It's a good, it's a good question. So my response to them is usually, could you please read this book? Read this, my book. Book. <laughs> read this book and report back to me. Where can people buy your book? <laughs> yeah, you can get this book on Amazon. So it's Mastering Diabetes right here. Now, the reason I say write this, read this book is not because I'm trying to sell more books. The reason I say read this book is because there are 800 scientific references in this book. Wow. I did not make up this story. I did not make up anything that I'm saying. Okay, I'm literally just a puppet. I am a messenger that is telling people what the scientific community has already discovered. Okay. So when people say, well, you know, I don't see, there's not enough evidence that shows blah, blah, blah. There's not enough randomized control trials. You're telling me there's only epidemiological evidence. And I say, read this book, because once you do, you will find out that there is very high quality evidence from many, uh, from many research studies over the course of you know, the last hundred years that clearly demonstrate that a diet that is high in fat is actually the primary cause of insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's really the, 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 the true story is that when you consume a high fat diet, the fat inside of your diet ends up getting inside of your blood through your digestive system. Once it's inside of your blood, it's packaged into these things called chylomicron particles. These chylomicron particles are little like vesicles that go and deliver fatty acids to tissues all throughout your body. If the fatty acids ended up only in your adipose tissue, your fat tissue, then diabetes wouldn't really be that big of a problem. Okay, because the fat tissue is exactly where fat is designed to be stored. 
Yeah. It's the perfect enzymatic environment. It's the perfect mechanical environment to take fat from the blood and put it and keep it for long periods of time. Mm -hmm. That is exactly what fat tissue is designed to do. Okay. But what, what happens is that when you eat a fat rich diet, every time you're eating a fat rich meal, whether it's got dairy products or whether it's got too much avocados or too many nuts and seeds or olive oil or, you know, red meat, white meat, you name it. Wait, so even healthy fats like avocados? We'll get to that. Okay. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Okay. But even when you're consuming, so when you're eating high fat foods in general, general, the fatty acids from those foods get into the chylomicron particles. Those chylomicrons distribute it to your adipose tissue, but they also deliver it to your liver and your muscle. Mm. And your liver and muscle are only designed to be able to store small amounts of fatty acids. That's how they're enzymatically designed. Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening is when you're eating a high fat diet over the course of time, you eat high fat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and then you do it again yeah. and again and again. Then tissues, namely your muscle and liver, end up getting overwhelmed with fatty acids. Mm -hmm. When they're overwhelmed with fatty acids, they have a problem. And the problem is that they're trying to block more energy from coming in because they're getting overwhelmed with too much energy. Mm -hmm. So what they do is they mount a, a, a resistance. They, they initiate this thing called insulin resistance where they're like, hey, Block insulin right now. Block insulin from, out, from communicating with us because if we can block insulin, then we can block more energy from coming in mm. because insulin is the master anabolic hormone in your body that's designed yeah. to get energy inside, get, get uh, you know, glucose and fatty acids and, and amino acids inside of tissue. Mm -hmm. So by initiating insulin resistance, what, what that means is that insulin, when it comes and says, knock, knock, I got this glucose in the blood because... Uh, you know, Fallon just ate a banana. Mm -hmm. Can you please take up that glucose? The tissues are like, no, 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 no. It's not but it's glucose not time. because that you ate something that was sugary or natural sugar. It's because of all the fatty stuff you were eating that shuts that door down. Exactly. It's, it's because excess consumption of fat-rich foods mm -hmm. causes a metabolic traffic jam that then blocks glucose uptake. I'll say that again. That's, that was good. That was okay. Excess consumption of fat-rich foods mm -hmm. causes a metabolic traffic jam, which then blocks glucose uptake. In other words, when you consume fat-rich foods, you create a traffic jam, and then you cannot consume carbohydrate-rich foods afterwards. That's which, the problem. Which means if you have a metabolic traffic jam, you cannot burn calories or break down sugars the way you used to, which will slow down your metabolism, which will pack Correct. on weight. Exactly right. Exactly right. <laughs> so here, here's the problem. The, the reason why people who eat a fat-rich diet actually end up gaining weight is for a couple of reasons. Number one, when you consume excess fat, First of all, fat is incredibly energy dense, meaning mm -hmm. that it contains nine calories per gram of fat as opposed to four calories per gram of carbohydrate. Okay? Mm -hmm. So it's more than double its energy density. Mm -hmm. So if you're consuming a fat-rich diet, the fat is shunted towards your adipose tissue where it is stored for long periods of time. And that's okay. okay? But in addition to that, uh, when you because a fat-rich diet blocks the action of insulin when insulin action is blocked and you eat something that's carbohydrate rich your glucose goes up and up and up and up and up because glucose gets trapped inside of your blood 
because mm-hmm. insulin cannot get it out of your blood very effectively. Mm-hmm. So when your your blood glucose rises, your pancreas then responds by going, oh, I'll solve that problem, and it makes more and more and more and more and more and more insulin. Okay, so now fat created a glucose traffic jam. A glucose traffic jam causes an insulin oversecretion. Yeah, and an insulin oversecretion. Remember, insulin is the most potent anabolic hormone in your body, period, end of story. There's nothing, there's no other hormone in your body that is as powerful as insulin Mm -hmm. at promoting fuel storage and promoting tissue growth. So if you are living in a hyperinsulinemic environment, meaning that there's too much insulin in your blood, Mm -hmm. then that primes tissues to grow. So your adipose tissue divides and it grows. Mm -hmm. Your liver divides and it grows, okay? Tissues all throughout your body divide and they grow. And as a result of that, tissues end up becoming just a little bit larger than they're supposed to be. And when your adipose tissue is constantly being signaled that there's excess insulin, excess insulin, excess insulin, excess insulin, your adipose tissue grows, which then increases the amount of body fat that you have, which then contributes to weight gain. It's like stimulating the the adipose, the fat tissues. Exactly right. Stimulating adipose tissue growth. You got it. Wow. This is the most intellectual conversation. I'm going to call you Dr. Cyrus. I love it. I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not confusing things here too much, but no, you're breaking it down in a way that I've personally never heard anybody break it down. Like I am right behind you, literally taking notes. Good. I I like that. How does metformin, I guess, work in the body to get that glucose down? Okay. Very good question. Very good question. So metformin does a number of things. Metformin increases uh, glucose absorption. Okay. Sorry. It it decreases glucose absorption Mm -hmm. in your intestinal tract. What that means is that when you eat carbohydrate rich foods, Mm -hmm. it gets inside of your intestinal tract. Metformin acts to basically say, Hey, 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 glucose, stay in the intestine. Just go into the toilet. Just go, go, don't, don't come in here. And that is what causes you to go to the bathroom all the time. That's one of the reasons why people end up with digestive problems. Exactly. That's one of the reasons because it's, it's affecting your digestive system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Number two, it moderately increases your insulin sensitivity inside of your muscle and liver. In other words, it moderately allows more glucose to come inside of the tissue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And as a result, and it moderately also decreases your appetite inside of your brain. Okay. So, and that, okay, so then I was going to ask you, I've heard, and you probably know so much information, no better than me. I heard there's a type three diabetes. Yeah. Has something to do with causing dementia. Yeah. Type three diabetes is dementia. Type three diabetes equals dementia equals Alzheimer's disease. Okay. So the reason why type three diabetes has become a pretty hot topic in today's world is because historically researchers have thought that Alzheimer's disease and dementia are caused by a plaque inside of your brain. In other words, a protein that, is, uh, that has been altered and basically accumulates in certain regions of your brain that then decreases your ability to think clearly mm-hmm. and it decreases nerve conduction in your brain and it causes confusion, it reduces blood flow, and it causes uh, you know, spatial unawareness and speech problems and an inability to remember things. That's what they've generally considered it to be, right? So what the pharmaceutical industry said was, okay, cool. If the problem is the plaque, we're gonna invent some kind of pharmaceutical drug that's gonna reduce that plaque 
accumulation. Mm-hmm. Every single drug that has ever been invented for Alzheimer's disease failed. Every single one. There is no single drug on the market that is even remotely capable of reducing your risk for the development of dementia and or Alzheimer's mm-hmm. or reversing either one of those. It's, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a massive, massive waste of money. Wow. Okay. So what researchers have, what a small number of researchers have found, and if anybody's interested in this subject, I highly recommend learning from doctors Dean and Aisha Sherzai, otherwise spelled as S-H-E-R-Z-A-I. Okay. They taught me everything I ever knew about Alzheimer's and dementia. They are literally the world's experts on this subject. And what they teach people is that your risk for uh, dementia and Alzheimer's is not controlled by a plaque that accumulates inside of your brain uh, that is out of your control. Your risk for Alzheimer's and dementia is controlled by predominantly your diet. It's controlled by your lifestyle, your diet, your exercise patterns, your stress levels, how much alcohol you drink. Okay. If you can control all of those things, then you can dramatically reduce your risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease, which are both classified as what's called cognitive decline. Okay. And it turns out, here's where the story gets interesting. It turns out. I'm already blown away. Like this is just like. Good. I I love it. I love it because plant-based nutrition is like the most fascinating subject I've ever learned before. So I'm glad you're into it. The mastering diabetes protocol, low fat, plant-based, whole food nutrition. Okay. Again, plant-based diet, high in whole, rich, sorry, in, in whole foods mm-hmm. that is extremely rich in, anti, uh, in, in anti-inflammatory compounds, mm-hmm. vitamins, minerals, fiber, water, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. Okay. Not packaged and processed vegan food. That's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Oh, low we'll fat whole food diet. Okay. When you consume a low-fat plant-based whole food diet, not only can you control type 1 and 1.5 diabetes with precision, not only can you reverse prediabetes and reverse type 2 diabetes, and yes, I said it, reverse gestational diabetes. Mm-hmm. Not only can you do that, not only can you lose weight, not only can you lower your cholesterol value, not only can you lower your blood pressure, but that is the exact recipe, it's the exact prescription for lowering your risk for dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Who knew? I'm right? Like, it's, it's unbelievable. It, it's really a plant-based diet is really the like Bible for health. Yes. That's, a, that's a great, that's a great term. I like that term a lot. It's, it really is because, you know, every comorbidity, every disease to some degree, if you can clean up your diet, to some degree, you're either going to reverse, no longer have, or just, you know, excel your health in some way. Dramatically improve. Yep. You're absolutely right. So the one modification I would say to that is a plant-based diet is, is your Bible for optimal short-term and long-term health. Yes. Because here's the problem. The reason I say that is because in the world of ketogenic diets in particular, mm-hmm. Ketogenic, the ketogenic community is fixed. I say fixated because I, I mean it on short term outcomes. Results. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're fixated on short-term rapid weight loss, mm-hmm. lower cholesterol values, which doesn't always happen. Yeah. Okay? Lower blood pressure, lower A1C, lower fasting blood glucose. Okay. That's what they care about. And they're always worried about it. What happens now? What happens in the next week? What happens in the next week? If you look in the research, what you'll find is that the majority of the ketogenic experiments happen over the course of 10 weeks to three months. Fine. Short-term results matter. Okay. Don't get me wrong. But long-term results are 10 times as important. And if you look at the long-term ketogenic data, what you'll find is that a ketogenic diet in the long-term is a train wreck. And I do not mean that. This is not hyperbole. This is not me just saying some rhetoric. It is a train wreck because the long-term ketogenic studies either have a very high dropout rate, yeah. like 40 to 50% of all people drop out because it is an unsustainable mm-hmm. method of eating in the long-term, or the, the studies that investigate diabetes in particular demonstrate that sure, they can lower insulin use dramatically, mm-hmm. but they lower insulin use, but their A1Cs remain elevated and their fasting glucose remains elevated. Yeah. And their C-reactive protein remains elevated. And none of those are good things in the long term. You're about to say something. I'm sorry. I feel like a, a kid in class where I'm like, ooh, ooh, I got to say something. I've got a question. So now that you're bringing up the long-term ter- effects of the ketogenic diet. So I you know, follow the fitness industry heavily. And recently, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and there's another... Um, there's another big fitness guy, both of them had, now they're older, they're, you know, in their sixties and it's older, but it's still young and they're getting, um, heart transplants or heart surgeries. And I feel like it's because, you know, I'm not assuming what they did to get their bodies, but what I know for sure is that they were on a heavy meat heavy, you know, high fat, low carb diets. And I feel like, you know, maybe we should be studying old bodybuilders or people who've been eating a certain way for so many years because the research is not studying, you know, those type of diets for that long. And I swear all of them end up having some heart issues to some degree. I'm actually glad you brought that up because uh, one confounding variable in the world of, uh, of bodybuilding, which like is rarely really like talked about openly, is anabolic steroid usage. Yeah, I didn't so, want to say it, but yeah. <laughs> no, no, yeah, it's it's it, well, let's talk about it because it's a skeleton in the closet. Okay. So, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's open. He's like, I use steroids. I absolutely use steroids. I'm, like, I'm not trying to deny that, right? So wait, a lot of other bodybuilders. No, he doesn't now. He doesn't now. But when now, he was competing, right? what's that? Is he a vegan now? He's a, he's I don't know if he's 100% vegan, but he is heavily plant-based because James Cameron, mm-hmm. the director, the Hollywood director, convinced him to become vegan because James Cameron is vegan. James Cameron was uh, the, the guy who made um, the Game Changers yep. movie. Arnold Schwarzenegger was in the Game Changers, and it's, yep. like a, it's a whole revolution that's happening within the professional athlete world. But what ends up happening to um, a lot of... Uh, bodybuilders who use anabolic steroids and even in other sports who use anabolic steroids Mm -hmm. is they develop a condition. Some of them develop a condition called uh, LVH, left ventricular hypertrophy. Okay. Don't remember that. The left valve of your heart. The left ventricle in your heart. (laughs) Exactly. 
<laughs> so you have you have the left ventricle and the right ventricle. So for whatever reason, an anabolic steroid will end up thickening the wall of your left ventricle more than the wall on your right ventricle. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that the the space inside of the left ventricle chamber, when the wall gets thicker, the space gets just a little bit smaller. Yeah. Which is a problem because when blood gets into the left ventricle and the left ventricle compresses that blood in order to pump it through the heart, the pressure inside of the left ventricle goes way up mm -hmm. because it's a smaller volume, right? Mm -hmm. So you end up with a pressure imbalance inside of your heart. Mm -hmm. and, and that over the course of time can, can 